Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I am your host, Brad Hicks, and this is the Spooky SLV Podcast. Let's get started. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, I am back. It's been two months, <laughs> almost two months. And first thing first is I want to apologize to all my listeners for that. Um, between being ill for a couple of weeks and having art commissions that I needed to get done, I just kind of let the podcast slide. And I'm not happy with that because I really, really enjoy doing the podcast. Um, I do get kind of burnt out on it a little bit, but I get burnt out on everything a little bit. That's unfortunate. The artist mind. We get burnt out on a lot of shit. Um, I will have a story, a couple of stories for you tonight. I'm going to read one that was, uh, sent to me by Glenna Price again. And then I will have one from, uh, Chris, uh, O'Brien's book, the, uh, either enter the Valley or mysterious Valley. I haven't quite decided which one yet. And then probably one from mysteries and miracles of New Mexico. It's a good book by Jack Koontz. So not Koontz, excuse me, cuts. I can't even talk right today, but, uh, let's get started. The Man in the Picture by Glenna Price Last January, my mother relinquished a precious family keepsake to me. It had been in her possession for the last 40 years since her mother passed away. My mom's eyesight had diminished over the years, and she reluctantly explained to me that she couldn't clearly see the faces in the prized photograph. Taken in the early 1920s, the subject of the photograph was a logging camp bunkhouse with the hired hands standing and sitting around the porch. My grandfather was one of these men. He stood on the porch, leaning with his right shoulder against the porch post. Since he and the post were centered in the photo, he was easily seen and identified. Being fairly tall and dark-haired, he was considered a good-looking man. His image had not been captured in many photographs, so this picture was a precious family keepsake. It not only displayed his appearance, but also his friends and the job he had at the time. Quite a bit of history for just one picture of this man. Now that it belonged to me, I had the opportunity to study it closely with my own eyes. As it hung on the wall behind the living room couch, I stood and stared for several minutes every day until the newness of it wore off. Soon it was just another picture on the wall. As my daughter and I were taking down Christmas decorations after the holidays, she dropped an ornament behind the couch. We scooted the couch away from the wall so she could find it. While behind the couch, she looked up at the picture hanging on the wall. Who is this man standing by Grandpa? I laughed at her because it meant she actually looked at the picture instead of staring at her phone. I told her I didn't remember, and she, we pushed the couch back against the wall. Later in the week, I was vacuuming, vacuuming up the sparkles from the Christmas ornaments. I glanced at the picture, looked at my grandfather's face as usual, and turned my attention back to the carpet and the vacuum hose. An image hung in my mind as I turned my head away. My grandfather was not standing by himself against the post something was different. I pulled the vacuum cleaner over to the couch so I could take a closer look. There he was, just like my daughter had said. A man was standing on the left side of my grandpa. I blinked and squinted at the picture again. He really was there. The vacuuming was just going to have to wait. I struggled and grunted as I moved the couch away from the wall by myself. This time I took the picture down from the wall 
and stood there holding it right in front of my eyes. How could this happen? He has never been in the photograph. My thoughts were zinging around in my head with confusion. Nothing made sense. My breathing was rapid and shallow. I finally had enough common sense to realize I needed to sit down before I keeled over. Carrying the picture frame to the kitchen table, I nudged over the napkin holder with the salt and pepper shakers. Leaning over the picture, I saw him. He was still there. With my breath under control now, I quickly went into the office for a magnifying glass. My hand quivered a bit as I placed the magnifying glass over the picture. First, I looked at my grandfather. He was a good-looking man. Then I moved over to the look beside his left shoulder. Crystal clear, the image of a man looked back at me. The clarity of his face instantly grabbed my attention. Pulling the lens away from the picture to view the faces side by side, I noticed my grandfather's face was dim and fuzzy because of the declining condition of the old picture. I placed the magnifier directly over the man's face and leaned in to look closely. Because of the cleanness of his face, I saw he was young, blonde, and tall enough to look over my grandfather's shoulder. As I was staring at the young face, he suddenly blinked his eyes. I pulled away instantly. My breath caught in my throat. No way, I thought. I did not see that. I dropped the magnifier on the picture frame. Still, I had to make sure. Picking it up, I cautiously peered th through the glass again. He was gone. There was, no so there was no one standing by my grandfather. Confused, I looked up at the wall above the table. My kitchen clock hung on the wall. Instead of the clock face, there was the face of this man, and he blinked again. I looked at the window, which had lace curtains. His face reflected back at me and blinked once. My eyes raced to the glass on the oven door. There he was, his face looking right at me, and he blinked. I shut my eyes tightly so I wouldn't see him anywhere again. Not able to see where I was going, I felt my way to the bathroom. I stood in front of the sink and barely opened my eyes to peek in the mirror. The mirror showed my reflection. Just my reflection. I let down my guard and limply hung onto the sink. Tears were stinging my eyes. I had been terrified and now relief flooded over me. I breathed deeply and finally convinced myself to return to the kitchen. I don't know how long I was in the bathroom. In the kitchen, I found my daughter and my husband pushing the couch back against the wall with the picture hanging in its usual place. They laughed as they thought I must have had to go to the bathroom really fast since I had left the vacuum cleaner and couch in the middle of the floor. I understood why they thought that. I did not tell them of my experience because they would have laughed even more. I did ask my daughter if she remembered seeing the man standing by Grandpa in the picture. Without taking her eyes off her phone, she shrugged her shoulders. Still, every now and then, I look at the picture in the logging crew. Sometimes the man is there with one blink of his eyes each time. The last time I saw him, he clearly smiled at me. <laughs> Lena, that's a good one. Thank you very much for that one. All right, the next story is from uh, The Mysterious Valley, written by Mr. Christopher O'Brien, who has graciously let me read from his books. Um, this one is called Holiday Visitors. I learned of the following event when John Browning called a national public radio program I was, as I was being interviewed. November 1st, 1992, 3 a.m., Sawatch County. John Browning, his son, and two friends were camped about 20 miles north of Sawatch during a Halloween hunting trip. 
The four Denver residents were dog-tired after spending all day in the mountains tracking an elusive elk herd. After making camp and cooking dinner, the weary group bundled up toward the off the cold mountain air and quickly fell asleep. At 3 a.m., Browning was awakened with a start. Strange stillness permeated the forest campsite, and an unusual glow bathed his camper. He was so intrigued by the lights directly overhead that he left his warm sleeping bag and ventured out into the cold to investigate. As his eyes grew accustomed to the lights traveling slowly above, headed south toward the western side of the SLV, he could make out the outline of an enormous triangular-shaped craft that blocked the night sky. There must have been 15 or 16 lights in the semicircle with four of them flashing around the center. He told me there wasn't a sound. Browning said he felt mesmerized by the light, lighting array and that flashed hypnotically overhead. I'm telling you, this thing was huge. It must have been at least a quarter of a mile long. He hurried to wake his son to witness the incredible sight before it had disappeared, but it was too late. Whatever that thing is, it wasn't from this world, he concluded. I wasn't so sure. The immense craft certainly sounded impressive, but as an investigator, I had to remain skeptical going in with the sincere-sounding veracity of John Browning. I was sure he had seen something, but it was truly extra. But was it truly extraterrestrial? I had heard rumors of secret government craft and wondered if the fantastic sighting could have actually been top secret and very terrestrial. The same night, 90 miles southwest of Browning and his party 40 miles west of Trinidad, Colorado, rancher John Torres's herd of cattle had a deadly Halloween visitor. The following morning, Torres discovered a three-year-old dead cow in a remote area of his ranch. The animal's tongue, genitalia, and eyes were missing. Torres had never seen anything like it in his years as a cattle rancher. That was no predator. They were real, real sharp cuts with no ridges. There were no tracks, no blood, no nothing. Later, when Greg Barman, NPR reporter, asked him who he thought was responsible for the mutilation of his cows, Torres answered with a nervous laugh. Well, as far as I'm concerned, it was aliens. Seriously, I really think it was something from out of this world to do something like that without leaving any evidence whatsoever. November 25th, 1992, 8.30 p.m., Baca Grande, Sawatch County. Michael and Andrea Nisbet enjoyed a quiet evening at home. The Nisbets, expert mineral and crystal wholesalers, relaxed after preparing for a trip to South America to finalize the transfer of two lucrative amber mines to their wholesale business. He and his wife had seen strange lights and ships near their house at the extreme south end, southwestern end of the Baca Grants on several occasions, but not up close. At 9 p.m., a powerful beam of light blasted down from outside and above the house, turning the night into day. They scrambled off the porch, running to a window that faced the Baca Ranch. A bright reflection hit their cars parked outside. Above them, an orange-white light traveled silently across their yard towards the end of Camino Real, a street that dead ends less than half a mile away. Around the bright beam, they could faintly make out pulsing lights. Suddenly, as if a switch had been flipped, the lights disappeared. The Nisbets held each other in the eerie darkness while the moonless sky pulled back into focus. But on this particular night, they were the lucky ones. Barbara Benara not her real name, 40-year-old mother of four, suddenly realized she was behind the wheel of her truck seven miles from home and her children and a strange force compelled her forward. That something was in complete control of her free will and she couldn't fight the fact that she was driving into the grants. Barbara was 
pulled as if by a magnet to the remote southwestern corner of the Baca development that borders the Baca Ranch. She parked less than half a mile from the Nisbet's home. What am I doing here? She remembers asking herself as she sat numbly in her truck at the end of Camino Real, overlooking the ranch 200 yards away. In a sweat, she loosened her coat and turned off the heater. What's gotten into me? Who's looking after my children? Her watch read 8.30 p.m. The silence roared in her ears. Barbara, now shivering, pulled her light coat around her, wiping her nose with the back of her hand. It was now freezing inside her truck. She looked at her hand. It was streaked with blood. Oh, my God. Her nosebleed could have only mean one thing. Her watch revealed it was 10.30 p.m. She shuddered. They had taken her again. It had been five years since the last time Barbara woke with a nosebleed in that peculiar feeling. They had come to her many times in the preceding 28 years. They always came at night. She knew because of the bloody nose. At first, when she was seven, their visits frightened her. She could never quite remember the details of what happened when they came, but she remembered a voice. The voice comforted her, comforted her and kept her from being afraid. As she grew older, she learned to trust the voice. My children. At 10.30 p.m. on November 25th, 1992, she wiped her face clean, turned the ignition, jammed the truck into gear, and rushed back to her house. Her children slept undisturbed. The next morning, Barbara felt exhausted but elated, reminding her of another morning after an unbelievable night in 1978 when the visitors actually revealed themselves to her. It was her first truly conscious encounter with the being she now calls the Little Brothers. A week before, she had been diagnosed with ovarian cancer. She had felt their, presence, felt their presence that night in 1978 and been unable to sleep. A tremendous lightning storm had swept through the area. They often arrived during lightning storms. She didn't remember falling asleep, but evidently she did. Upon waking, I was lying on a soft, sofa, soft table in a white circular room. I could only move my head. I don't recall how long I lay there, but I felt peaceful. And then I heard the voice. It told me that I needed their help. I asked the voice if I could see them. They appeared in front of her around the foot of the table. There were four of them, all identical. They were three to four feet tall, ivory white, and had large almond-shaped eyes. A fifth being appeared in front of the four. This one was a little taller. Its eyes were intense. I couldn't stop staring into them. The taller being communicated directly with her mind and told her not to be afraid. She recognized the familiar voice. I don't remember how I got there, but I remember I found myself immersed in an L-shaped tank. A long, segmented arm came out of a console next to the tank and inserted itself into me. It was painful, but it didn't feel painful, and it didn't feel comfortable. I had to relax and trust the voice that kept telling me not to be afraid. The next thing, next thing she knew, it was morning, and she felt extremely tired and didn't have a nosebleed. Four days after this alleged encounter, Barbara says she returned to her doctor who, at her insistence, performed the same test he'd used to determine the status of her cancer. The tests came up negative. They cured me of ovarian cancer, Barbara says proudly. She is puzzled why they had her drive so far from her home that Thanksgiving Eve after not visiting for five years. I don't remember anything during almost two hours in my truck, but I know it was the little brothers, she assured me. Rule number three, always credit your sources and respect requests for anonymity. 
That same Thanksgiving morning, a double-propped military helicopter thundered less than 50 feet over the Nisbetone, heading south toward the Great Sand Dunes National Monument. Michael and Andrea agree. Every time we see lights or ships or something we can't explain here in the Baca, the next morning we see helicopters headed in the same direction. Initially, it appeared that certain people were more prone to sighting experiences than others. But wanted the experience didn't but wanting the experience didn't necessarily mean an individual would have one. Some of the most ardent believers in UFOs and ETs have never had a single sighting experience. November 27, 1992, 2.30 a.m., 80 miles south of Costilla County. Manuel Sanchez, the Costilla rancher from the Courier article, couldn't sleep. He peered out of the window of his modest ranch house across the pitch black pasture, seeing and hearing nothing as usual. He finally fell into a fitful sleep until just before the dawn. As he left the house the following Thanksgiving morning, as he left the house following the Thanksgiving morning to check on his herd, he stopped. Not 50 feet away from his house, one of his prized breeding cows lay motionless on her side, obviously dead. Her rear end, udder, and tongue had been cleanly removed. The animal's mandible bleached a ghostly white one of the 20th century's most enigmatic phenomena to return to the place of its publicized birth. He ran toward the animal. No, not her, he said to himself. He had seen it before. The sight of the carcass filled him with the same dread he'd felt out there losing a cow in identical fashion 18 years before. An angry, worried Sanchez immediately, immediately called Costilla County Sheriff Billy Mestis, who investigated the scene with Deputy, Deputy Roger Benson. No predator could have done that, Mestis agreed. I've seen a lot of dead livestock in my time, and this really concerns me. Mestis immediately called Los Animas Sheriff Lou Girodo to ask the UAD expert for assistance and found, that, found out John Torres had lost a cow in the same manner. Sanchez also called the Valley Courier and spoke with reporter Ruth Heat. I called the paper to warn everybody to keep their eyes open for lights or anything. I mean, if they could do this to my cow, maybe they could do it to humans. A lot of people disappear in the mountains around here, and I are never seen again. Gerardo, a longtime law enforcement officer, had puzzled over unusual animal deaths in almost, for almost 20 years. He had been interviewed in Linda Moulton Ho's book, Alien Harvest, and in her Emmy Award-winning documentary, A Strange Harvest, about the UAD problem. He was convinced that the phenomenon was a true mystery, worthy of investigation. You know, the UFO stuff that happens around here just boggles my mind. I mean... Lots of people have seen stuff. I've seen stuff. Uh, and I don't know if I've told this before, but when we lived in Alamosa in an apartment, we had this, uh, basically the back roof of the house of the apartment was our deck. And we got down to the alleyway through a set of steps. And when I smoked, I was back there having a cigarette one day on one of my days off. And my wife was coming home and I look off in the distance. I look like there's some birds flying around. I was like, well, that looks cool. And I grabbed my binoculars real quick and I look and they're six silver orb shaped spheres i mean they're just spheres is all they are is all i can tell from the distance flying around flying around flying around they're just doing these crazy patterns and they stop in a certain pattern it was like uh three on top three on bottom then they fly around a little bit more then they stop again in a different pattern with three on one three on the left three on the right fly around fly around again stop in another pattern where there's six in a circle they were just, it was instant stop. It was like they were moving really, really fast and then instantly stopped. And uh, I'm watching them, watching them. My jaw's hanging open. I just can't believe what I'm seeing. And my wife walks up while I'm watching. Them. 
she puts her hand over the binoculars and I stop real quick and look at her. And as I look back through the binoculars, gone, instantly gone. I couldn't believe what I had seen. I, I still have a hard time actually believing what I saw. I thought it was a flock of birds at first, the way they were moving around kind of lazily. And then as soon as it seemed like somebody was watching them, they started doing patterns and stuff. It was, it was interesting. Anyway, Mr. O'Brien, thank you for letting me read from your book. The uh, final story will be from Jack Kuntz out of his book, Mysteries and Miracles of New Mexico. Sorry, Jack Cuts, I believe. And the story's name is New Mexico's Mystery Rock. In the timeless reaches of the desert, only the rocks are eternal. Desert sands constantly shift. Straggling vegetation lives out its brief time and dies. Humans come and go. Even the ageless rivers gnaw at their banks and insist on change. Only the rocks endure yielding only to the slow deserts grinding. They stand haughty and aloof, watching the passage of the centuries. The desert's rocks have seen the lifetime of the land, and in their volcanic hearts they hold the desert's history, its past, its secrets. Surely no rock in the deserts of North America ever held a more tantalizing secret than the legendary mystery rock of New Mexico. Fifteen miles northwest of Los Lunas, in the midst of a scorching wasteland, a rounded mesa known as Hidden, Ma Hidden Mountain rises above the banks of the Rio Puerco. Its arid slopes stretch up to a dark basalt crown, and its sides are cleaved by boulder-strewn arroyos. Partway up one of these gullies lies in an ordinary stone. Ordinary, that is, except for one thing. Carved into the rock is an inscription so strange it's puzzled archaeologists, anthropologists, and laypersons for more than a hundred years. The mystery rock is part of a basalt column which appears to have toppled onto its side. At the base of the column, a large, smooth surface corner stone bears line lines, nine lines of writing. Eleven sentences composed of 214 letters. Eighteen different letters make up the individual words of the message. Most are Canaanite Phoenician characters, though for a time, some observers thought the text included Hebrew characters as well. And a few Russian Cyrillic <laughs> letters, at least one Etruscan and one Egyptian character. The words formed by this linguistic potpourri cross and recross the rock in perfectly straight lines carved deep into the age-old lava. When the dark desert varnish that coats basalt is penetrated, the light-colored inner core of the rock shows through, giving the inscription the appearance of chalk words on a blackboard. It stands out sharp and clear. But what does it say? Why is it there? And who is the engraver? The mystery rock's existence has been an open secret for longer than the living memory of its oldest visitor. Indians, prospectors, and ranchers have sat before it and scratched their heads in perplexity. Scientists have trooped up the narrow trail like pilgrims, to a desert shrine. Photographs have been taken, plaster castings made, and dozens of theories advanced. Is it a hoax? By scratching one hard stone against another, one can quickly determine the time required to make a single deep incision into solid basalt. Cutting the inscription was an incredibly painstaking process. Why would anyone labor long hours in the boiling sun in an obscure arroyo to create a cryptogram which might never be found? 
Proponents of the hoax theory have suggested that the work was done by early anthropology students from the University of New Mexico, that the inscription is nothing more than a brilliantly conceived college prank. These skeptics claim the carvings is of recent origin and cite as evidence the fact that the eminent archaeologist Adolf Bendelier explored the area in 1880 and made no mention of a mystery stone in his lengthy report. However, Florencio Chavez Sr., a former Los Lunas resident, has reported being shown the rock by his maternal grandmothers, the Simon Cerna. Cerna was born in 1829, and his father had seen the rock for the first time around 1800. The inscription on the stone is many years older than either Bandelier or the University of New Mexico's first anthropology student. If not a hoax, then what? A treasure marker, perhaps? Attempts have been made to dig beneath or around the stone. The excavators found nothing but more rock. How then was the rock's mystery to be solved? The first clue is that the periods come at the beginning of the sentences. It is obvious that the message must be read from right to left. Many ancient languages are read in this way. In 1948, William H. McCart, an Albuquerque metallurgist and occasional prospector, took an interest in the rock. He photographed it and sent a photo to Dr. Robert H. Pfeiffer at the Semitic Museum in Harvard University. In the February 1949 issue of Isis magazine, Pfeiffer wrote that upon examination of the photograph, he recognized it as a summary of the Ten Commandments in Hebrew based on Exodus 20 to 17. I am Yahweh, thy God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. This inscription was, he wrote, an excellent imitation of old Phoenician alphabet, which had not been in use for two millennia. The discovery of who engraved that inscription in New Mexico would be an interesting item of Americana, he added. Interesting indeed, but it would be nearly 30 more years before that discovery was made. The Pfeiffer translation was generally accepted as the true one, and the mystery rock was often referred to as the Ten Commandments rock. Frank Hibben, professor of anthropology at the University of New Mexico, was one of the first to take a crack at identifying the mysterious engraver. Hibben, spec Hibben speculated that Mormons had, done the Mormons had done the work during one of the early migrations across the state. He felt certain that the inscription was not ancient. He stressed emphatically that it was not Phoenician. It was archaic Hebrew, he said probably done about 1900. He did not challenge the assertion that the message was the Ten Commandments, but he noted it was a little different than the Old Testament and that it followed the Talmud instead. Now, the Mormons took an interest in the curious rock. The Archaeological Society of Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah, sent an investigative team to make a study. The Church of the Latter-day Saints felt that such a discovery would appear to agree with Book of Mormon. But they were concerned that acceptance of the rock as a Mormon artifact could prove embarrassing to the church if it was later shown to be fraudulent. The Mormon team ex examined the stone and in 1954 published an article that stated the inscription was quite recent because a mere glance was enough to reveal the crisp freshness of the newly cut letters. The investigators should have taken a little closer glance for the crisp freshness was due to the fact that McCart and others had frequently scratched chalk into the incisions to facilitate photography. By now, the experts had all completed their examinations of the stone, published their contradictory findings, and gone on to other subjects. It was time now for the amateurs to take over. In 1964, an Albuquerque attorney, Robert Lafoyette, approached the mystery from a new perspective. By first determining the phonetic sounds for each of the apparently Phoenician characters, he was able to read the inscription aloud. Much to his surprise, it sounded very much like the Navajo language. Quick Dictionary confirmed it. La Follette, with the help of a Navajo interpreter, 
translated The Rock's message into English and found it to be a story of an epic journey. It told of a people pursued by enemies and fleeing across water. There was an account of a battle and an ordeal of thirst and hunger. The travelers met other tribes, were aided by them, and at last arrived at a river where they built their homes. Now there were two completely different translations of the same inscription of the La Follette interpretation again posed more questions than it answered. Could there actually be a connection between the Navajo language and Phoenician? Did Navajos ever use stone writing in such a sophisticated way? And what of the Navajos' Athabascan ancestors? Where are their inscriptions on rocks? Puzzles seem to appear within puzzles. The more the mystery rock was studied, the deeper its mystery grew. Many people have climbed the mesa above in search of additional clues from the summit. A magnificent desert panorama, panorama spreads out in all directions. The muddy Rio Puerco follows its tortured, twisted course through wild, empty country. To the east, the escarpment of the Manzano Mountains near Albuquerque rises sharply. To the west, a maze of tablelands and canyons pile up one behind the other, scattered over the hump-like crest of the hidden mountains. The broken ruins of many Indian pit houses are clearly visible along the edge of the mesa as are dozens of petroglyphs, the Indian rock drawings. There can be no doubt that this desert hill once hosted an Indian village. The archaeologist Bandelier sifted through these ruins in 1880. Simon Cerna's father was here even earlier, and long, long ago, someone else walked on the crest of this hill. Here, before all the others, before the pit houses were built, before the petroglyphs were pecked into the rocks. The earlier visitor left an incredible mark, a sharp, clear message which is enigmatic only because we now poorly understand the language he wrote, once wrote so eloquently and precisely. Who on earth was this ancient writer? La Follette claimed that a plaster cast he made of the stone revealed two faintly drawn human faces which, to the naked eye, are indiscernible on the actual rock surface. Could that possibly be true, or did La Follette simply have a good imagination? For that matter, Pfeiffer and Hibben were not entirely in agreement. What if none of the three men, the three of them, were correct? So far, there seemed to be no completely satisfactory answer. Then one night in the late 1970s, an Albuquerque woman named Dixie L. Perkins sat down to watch KOB TV, Mysteries of the Desert. There on her television, she got her first glimpse of the mystery rock. Immediately, she told her husband, we must go see it. And once she had, she found she could not rest until she pulled the secret out of that rock. Four days later, she had not only done exactly that, but she had also discovered the name and nationality of the engraver. Dixie Perkins was uniquely qualified to make this incredible breakthrough. For years, she had been actively interested in epigraphy. Epigraphy? Epigraphy? The fascinating art of deciphering, interpreting, and classifying ancient inscriptions. She had made translations of 3,500-year-old cuneiform, and it studied the Greek and Latin languages. She was also a professional calligrapher with 35 years of experience. Perkins quickly picked up on clues that archaeologists and scholars had apparently missed. She identified the letters as being from the Phoenician Greek alphabet, which was used in 500 BC. She noticed at once that all the letters were capitals, a style of printing used exclusively in early Greek. She also discovered that many of the vowels had been left out, but perhaps her most important observation was that the uh, Cypriot Greek letter S appears on the stone. This strange symbol does not resemble a contemporary S in any way. It is actually two individual characters, two horizontal E's balanced on stems and facing each other. The character was in use in the 4th century BC, but was not discovered by scholars until 1910. 
The Cypriot Greek S was also known when the mystery rock was first visited by contemporary man. The antiquity of the inscription was now firmly established. Next came the intricate process of translation. Perkins took the letters one by one, the Phoenician A, which looks like a horned cow laying on its side, the B, which resembled a printed number nine, the G, like a tilted seven, and so on. Finally, the deciphering required Perkins to supply the omitted vowels and then to translate the resulting Canaanite Phoenician Greek message into English. The words began to emerge. The first four letters in the upper right-hand corner were ankum, using the Greek root words ana and equa. And by adding the necessary vowels, Perkins was able to make out the Greek word anikinomai. That done, the mystery rock began to tell its story. I have come up to this point or place. About halfway through the text, Perkins translated the word zankir. Zakner? With the missing vowels added, it became zakineros. A proper name, I Zacaneros, it read. As the translation unfolded, she learned the author was from the Grecian area of the Mediterranean Sea and that this story was both extraordinary and haunting. She first published her translation in 1979. Then in 1981, she obtained an old photograph of the mystery rock taken about 1950. She compared the words in the photograph to the one she copied directly from the stone in 1978, observing that a few letters had been defaced and even broken off in the interim. Consequently, she retranslated three words in her first version to confirm to the meaning of the original words as depicted in the photographs. With Perkins' permission, her remarkable translation in its entirety is as follows. I have come to this place to stay. The other one met with an untimely death in battle, dishonored, insulted, and stripped of flesh. The men thought him to be an object of care whom I looked after, considered crazed to be tossed about as if in a wind to perish in poverty and need. By my kinsmen, I was respected and honored, of blessed lot, with a body of slaves and so many olive trees, a peg to hang anything upon. Men punished me with exile to exact retribution for a debt. Meanwhile, I remain here as a rabbit. I, Zakirnos, Zakineros, just as a prophet out of reach of mortal men, I am fleeing and very afraid. I am dross, scum, refuge, just as aboard ship a soft, effeminate sailor is flayed with an animal hide. All who speak offensively are lashed or beaten with a cane, but after a short time, the hurtful ones may be sated. As an unseasonable time, I remain to protect from the rainy southwest winds, the hollow or the ravine. Very much harvest is gathered in, very much is in the woody dell and glen. Very many bags of young deer, very many hides with delicate, luxuriant hair. By the channel of a river, swift flowing, very much is given by the gods. The choicest kind of gift, to call upon the gods for again and again, at the unseasonable time I became gaunt from hunger. Zacchinero, speaking from a stone lodged on the side of a desert mesa, immortalized his anguish, leaving us to wonder about his eventual fate. It took courage to contradict the Ten Commandments version, said Perkins. Some people say my translation is bunk because they don't want to believe it isn't the Ten Commandments. But Pfeiffer's translation was cursory. A Jewish lady friend of mine who taught Hebrew in a private school for many years in New York City did a critique of the Ten Commandments version. She concluded that 60% of the translation was in the translator's mind. So now that the puzzle is solved at last, can the mystery rock finally be forgotten? Not at all. What Dixie L. Perkins has done is open a door, throw a shaft of light down a previously dark corridor of history. 
She has proven the mystery of rock is older than Columbus, older than the Vikings' explorations. Zacaneros, lonely as he may have been when he died, did not come here alone. He traveled with others across the Atlantic and over half an unexplored continent to obscure river known today as the Rio Puerto. Did his companions build settlements? Did they leave other traces of their passage? If so, can they be found? Dixie Perkins' solution to the mystery rock has simply presented many new mysteries to discover. I am going to find that rock. <laughs> That's cool. I actually haven't read that story before. That was kind of neat. I've never even heard of the mystery rock of New Mexico. And if it is Phoenician and Greek, why are there Hebrew, some Hebrew and some Egyptian, I mean, characters in there? That kind of seems odd to me. But anyway, um, I think we're done for the day. I will get you another one out next week, Tuesday, 6 o'clock. We'll put this one out today, which is, um, what the hell is today? Thursday? Wednesday? I don't know. Thursday. Thursday. Yes, I will have this out by 6 o'clock tonight. <laughs> so if you're hearing this, guess what? It's past 6 o'clock. But anyway, thanks for listening, folks. Y'all have a great night. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, for my last little bit here, I'm going to tell you thank you again, and I apologize one more time for no episodes for almost two months. Like I said, I was ill for a couple of weeks and been working on art commissions. Uh, any of you that follow me on Facebook and Instagram have seen the commissions. Those are the big one that I've been working on. But um, just want to give a shout out to Andreas Herrera, who, again, gave me the intro music and outro music. He is a, is a good friend. He's a great musician. You should check him out. He has the, his podcast, uh, Decibels Deep podcast on Spotify. He also has uh, Instagram by that name. He also has uh, his music Instagram, which is Entropy in Motion Music on Instagram. So you need give, give him a look. Check him out. Give him some love. He's a great guy. Can be a pain in the ass sometimes, you know. But that's how friends are. <laughs> He's going to shoot me for that one. Anyway, uh, I'm heading out, folks. Y'all have a good evening.